0: Pick up this morning's passage. We're we're three days since the crucifixion of Jesus at this point in Luke's gospel account. The first day of the week, Sunday. The women having returned to the tomb at daybreak with the burial spices that they had prepared for Jesus' body, only to find the stone rolled away, the body of the Lord Jesus nowhere to be found. Two angels having appeared to them, Luke tells us, announcing the miracle of the resurrection, just as Jesus had prophesied would come to pass. Prompting them to bring that remarkable news of the risen Jesus to the 11, Judas the betrayer, no longer counted among the apostles, the women met with skepticism, we're told. Their message in the original language, believed to be silly talk. Nonsense, folly. Peter, nonetheless, compelled to run to the empty tomb that he might investigate their claims for himself firsthand. Later that same day, the risen Jesus having appeared going back to last week to two devastated and disoriented disciples on a dusty dirt road, their heightened expectations of a political Messiah unmet, leading to perhaps the greatest seminary course that's ever been taught. The risen Jesus showing them how the Old Testament speaks of and points to him. In the words of one scholar, the word of God incarnate explaining the word of God written. The two failing to recognize Jesus throughout the course of of the journey, though having seen him throughout the pages of the Old Testament that day. Only to recognize him in the breaking of bread later that evening, Luke tells us. Perhaps the act itself revealing to them his nail-scarred hands. Jesus disappearing soon after, leaving them to sit with the wonder of, of all that had taken place that day. A day that they would surely never forget. The day that in the words of one scholar, their winter of soul was gone forever. Their hearts set ablaze in the encounter that they had with Jesus that day. If you pick up the story in verse 33, Luke tells us, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. No longer concerned with the lateness of evening, going back to verse 29, nor the fear of traveling that Emmaus road by night compelled to return that very same hour to Jerusalem that they might tell the apostles and those gathered with them what had happened to them on their journey and in the breaking of bread with Jesus. Peter too now having seen the risen Jesus for himself. Luke doesn't tell us about that episode, that encounter. The apostle Paul does later on though in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus between the time of his resurrection and his ascension. In one instance, speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, appearing to more than 500 brothers at one time. Not only dispelling the idea that the sighting of the risen Jesus was some sort of hallucination, the very nature of a hallucination being that multiple people can't experience the same one at the same time, but two, dispelling the notion that Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb and was hidden away somewhere in some effort to perpetuate a lie. I mean, after all, even if the body had been stolen, consider this, it wouldn't explain a once dead man now making public appearances, the vast number of eyewitnesses growing by the hour. If news spread that a famous celebrity having passed away was no longer dead but alive, the first thing that people would do is run to the grave. Assuming the the body to have been stolen if the grave were to be found empty. But it wouldn't really matter if people had thought that the body was stolen. If the famous celebrity in question were spotted by hundreds of people at a party at LA. The point would be that he or she is alive again. That's the point with the resurrected Jesus. That we're not singing songs to one still enshrouded in burial linens. But rather, we're singing songs to one whose body the grave couldn't hold down. It's amazing. Luke chapter 24, you get these three stories, and they're themed out very similarly. You have this moment of unbelief. It began with the women visiting the tomb in the earlier part of this chapter, Then we moved on to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and and here we encounter unbelief as well. We'll get there in just a moment, followed by a rebuke of Jesus, and, and then the eyes of those present being opened and the wonder of it all, and then evangelism, which is the natural outworking of having seen Jesus for who he truly is. Luke could have given us one of these stories and we would have been just fine, but he sees need for us to see it three times over in different ways, with some similarities, but also some different details that might catch our attention. And so he goes on to tell us in verse thirty-six. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace to you." It's the dark of evening. Keep in mind, Jesus appears. To those who had abandoned him just days ago, leaving him to suffer and die alone. The risen Jesus' first words to them, not words of rebuke, but of mercy, of grace, of love. Not only words of greeting, but two words of pronounced blessing, peace to you. How can Jesus declare those things? Because three days prior, he had made peace by the blood of his cross. Spoken by the only one, hear Jesus saying these words, in whom true and lasting peace can be found. But they were startled, verse 37. Frightened. Thought they saw a spirit. Still unsure of what to, to make of the things that they'd seen and heard. Again, just like the women earlier in this chapter, just like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus believing Jesus perhaps to be an apparition, as as was the case when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea. Remember that story? They were terrified, and they cried out in fear, It is a ghost. And in this case, verse 38, we're told he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. See. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Right, the, the recording of these words, perhaps to some, might, might not seem incredibly significant. Nothing more than a continuation of the resurrection story according to Luke. And yet, in these words lies an incredibly important doctrine, namely the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The the, the Greek philosophers in Jesus' day, they were peddling this idea that the spirit's good and the body's bad, that without a physical body, there would be no gluttony, no drunkenness, no lust, no murder, and so forth and so on. So that some came up with the idea that Jesus' Resurrection was spiritual or metaphorical, believing that Jesus is resurrected in our hearts but not in his body. And yet, Luke declares that Jesus' resurrection was in fact a bodily resurrection so that his nail-scarred hands and feet could be touched. As the Apostle John would go on to write, 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have all seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, that is Jesus, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Such testimony having massive implications for our own resurrection from the dead. As Jesus sets the pattern for our resurrected bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the agricultural world, the the first fruits being the first portion of the harvest. Meaning that the remainder of the harvest will come someday. It's promised The resurrection of the body unto eternal life for those who are united by faith to Jesus. As Paul would go on to write in Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our lowly body to be like his glorious body. A transformation that Paul describes elsewhere and yet it's still hard to wrap our minds around. The mystery of it all. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 through 44. So it is, Paul says, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We currently have bodies suited for the present life, ill-equipped for the age to come. And yet, someday the resurrected bodies of those who are in Christ will be adorned with adjectives that make those very bodies suited for eternity with Jesus. That's good news. No more battle with our flesh. No more misinformed affections. No more struggles with willpower. Renewed by the Holy Spirit, His power fully at work in us. Perfect healing and wholeness. No more sickness, no more death. Perfect fullness of joy. This is what the apostle Paul longed for, the permanent building from God, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. That we're not going to become floaty beings playing harps on clouds. Glorified physical bodies, and not just our bodies, but creation itself, as Paul would write elsewhere Romans chapter 8. Verses 19 through 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're not going to float away to heaven someday. Rather, God will someday transform the entire physical created order which He pronounced good in the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Just as Jesus' physical body was transformed through the resurrection, creation itself someday transformed and freed from the effects of sin, made more beautiful and efficient for the purposes of eternity, the new Eden. These are the glorious doctrines representing glorious truths that are at stake as we see Jesus flesh and bones in this morning's passage. Which is why Luke goes on to say, verse 41, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. They disbelieve for joy. First glance, a strange way of saying something. Simply another way of saying, I can't believe it. This is too good to be true. I do believe it, but wonder of wonders. In the midst of their marveling, Jesus not only expressing his desire for a midnight snack, but partaking of it right before their very eyes. Again, the kindness of the Lord in Luke's recording of these events in further emphasizing that Jesus' resurrection is indeed a bodily resurrection. His body, a flesh and bones body, fully capable of enjoying the local seafood fare. Which Jesus, by the way, did numerous times with his disciples between the time of his resurrection and ascension over the course of that 40 days. Which is why... Peter would record these words, Acts chapter 10, or would speak these words, I should say, recorded by Luke. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Here it is. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruits, the pattern for you and I. He goes on to say in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus had foretold of his impending death and resurrection, recorded multiple times throughout Luke's gospel account. We've looked at these verses several times along the way. Passages like Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22 where he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Or Luke 18, verses 31 through 33, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. These are my words, verse 44, that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus taught his disciples throughout the course of his public ministry, the necessity of his suffering. And on, on the other side of his suffering, his subsequent glory here declaring such teaching to be in accordance with the scriptures, just as he had with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In this case, citing the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, verse 44, all three major literary categories that make up the Old Testament, all three proclaiming the necessity of the Messiah's death and resurrection, which I attempted as best I could to bring before us last week as we journeyed down that Emmaus road. But, Notice here, and here, here's where I want to draw the distinction of what makes this different from the passage that we looked at last week. Notice here that Jesus doesn't just speak of his death and resurrection as he had on that dusty dirt road with those two disciples earlier that day. Speaking too here of the promise of repentance and forgiveness, verse 47, beginning from Jerusalem and extending to all nations. That promise too, Jesus says, proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. The law, the prophet, and the Psalms. I'll give you an example of each. In the law, the Lord declared to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the prophets, the Lord declared through Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. No, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The law, the prophet, the Psalms. In the Psalms, David recorded these words. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. All declaring, verse 47, the promise of repentance and forgiveness beginning from Jerusalem and extending to all the nations. That yes, the one born king of the Jews has come to bring glory to Israel, but it's a work of redemption. Now overflowing the banks of that river, bursting them at the seams, flooding the nations with the revelation of God's glory and grace in Jesus Christ. See what Luke's doing here. He's setting us up for the sequel, the book of Acts. We did it backwards as a church. We went with Acts first, and now we're in the prequel. We have to use that kind of language. But nonetheless, you see see the continuity where this story's headed. The story of Jesus building his church by his grace in the advancement of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. These are the things that Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand as he met with them the night of his resurrection and interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. It says in verse 48, You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit empowering his disciples for the spread of the gospel. As Jesus would go on to declare in that great sequel, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one of the more famous verses in all of the Old Testament. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. An outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the earliest Post resurrection ambassadors of God that they might proclaim the risen Son of God to the praise of the glorious grace of God. That's where the story's headed, as the first Easter Sunday comes to an end. A day having begun, mind you, with burial spices, devastation, and disillusionment at the break of dawn. A day ending with the promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit from the lips of the bodily risen Lord Jesus himself. The tomb empty. The world soon to be turned upside down for the glory of Christ. We're part of that story 2,000 years later. It goes on. The reason we call it the Acts 29 network. We're not trying to add to the Bible. We're just saying the story doesn't end there. Luke here leaving us with a, a few brief verses in this great story that he's out to, to tell. Brief yet incredibly wondrous in declaring the hope of the ascension. But that's another story for another day. For now, I would, I would simply ask, have you put your trust in the risen Savior and King and Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you turned from your sin and turned to him in faith He's the only one in whom we can find forgiveness, the hope of salvation. The book of Acts will go on to make that crystal clear. There is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So if you don't know Jesus in an abiding way, I would invite you to turn from your sin and to turn to him in trust and faith this morning, to know the, the peace Peace to you, to know the peace that He made by the blood of His cross. And if you are a Christian, it's sad that these kind of truths would awaken the hearts of so many in the church world once a year, kind of store them in the storehouse, the fine china of Easter Sunday to be brought out, one out of 52 Sundays to celebrate. And yet every Sunday, We sing to a risen Jesus. We need all three of these stories in Luke chapter 24. We need them back to back to be reminded three times over that he's alive. That the grave couldn't hold his body down. That we're about to sing songs and we're not singing to a dead Jesus. How silly that would be. There are way too many good Sunday hobbies. But he's alive The day started with burial spices and it ended with an empty tomb and the promise to send the Spirit of God.